This is exactly right. Hi, I'm Erin Welsh. And I'm Erin Almond Updike, and we're the hosts of This Podcast Will Kill You on Exactly Right. We're back with our seventh season, which is bigger and better than ever. Because guess what? We're now a weekly show. This season, we're tackling everything from long COVID to norovirus, from the supplement industry to IVF, and so, so much more. New episodes drop every single Tuesday. Follow This Podcast Will Kill You wherever you get your podcasts. What it also has done on the positive side is help people see that, oh, you're suffering, you have these problems too, I'm not alone, and what I'm experiencing has a name, because it's not as though teenagers, okay, so more teenagers may be, may be anxious now, but it's not as though that's the only thing. They were anxious, but may not have known that what they were experiencing is anxiety, and now more people realize it. Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place, one parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for parents to seek the same in their own lives while striving to be the best versions of themselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, With increased awareness, you can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint for your children, your family, and all those you care about while living your own life to the fullest. Today's show is Why Am I So Anxious with Dr. Tracy Marks. Dr. Marks is a general and forensic psychiatrist of over 20 years whose mission is to increase mental health awareness and understanding by educating people on psychiatric disorders, mental well-being, and self-improvement. She believes that insight creates change, both on a micro level, as in personal growth, and a macro level, like reduction in fear and social judgment. Dr. Marks produces educational videos on her YouTube channel, Dr. Tracy Marks, and they are phenomenal. As a forensic psychiatrist, she has formulated over 1,000 opinions through independent medical evaluations, criminal assessments, or civil litigation consultations. She's been qualified as an expert in multiple federal and state courts and military court martial. She also maintains a general psychiatry clinical practice focusing on mood disorders, anxiety disorders, and burnout. Dr. Marks has been sought after by CNN and HLN for forensic and general psychiatric commentary, and she is also the author of several books, Master Your Sleep, Bipolar Basics, and her latest book, which we're going to dive into today, Why Am I So Anxious? Powerful Tools for Recognizing Anxiety and Restoring Your Peace. Dr. Marks, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So I'd like to start with learning about what led you to psychiatry in general, and then specifically forensics. Ah, so psychiatry in general, it was a bit of an afterthought. I already had decided in medical school that I was going to do internal medicine, and I deferred my psychiatry rotation because into my fourth year because I, I, I wasn't interested in it. 
Yeah, later. And, I'll um, do that later. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, I don't yeah. need it. So, yeah. <laughs> and when I did the rotation in my fourth year, I was doing it while I was interviewing for internal medicine uh, residencies. And I was just really struck by how different it was from what I expected. I actually didn't know what to expect. And I saw that I that it resonated with me so much more as far as helping people with their mental and emotional pain. Hmm. So I changed my mind after I went through the internal medicine residency application process and then entered into psychiatry. Um, as far as forensics goes, it wasn't until my third year of training. So psychiatry is a four year, four years of training. In my third year, I was working in the consult liaison service, which is where you are getting referrals from medicine services, neurology, because they have patients that have a mental issue and they want the psychiatrist's opinion. And we got a lot of requests for assessing people for whether or not they had the capacity to refuse treatment or sign out of the hospital. Seems like these legal issues pulled in the psychiatrists. Mm -hmm. And that fascinated me because it was a way to apply my um, basic psychiatric information and training, apply it to a different scenario. Instead mm -hmm. of just diagnosing, I'm applying it to a question. Mm -hmm. And I was an engineering major in undergrad, uh, mm. which is like an applied science. So being so this is another way that psychiatry resonated with me or forensic psychiatry resonated with me of it being an plot an application of psychiatry hmm. i so i have great respect for psychiatrists and psychologists who go into forensics and i as a clinical psychologist i've been pulled in over the years into you know expert witness at times or asked you know, pulled in in some scenarios and asked in other scenarios and came in with like, you know, best intention, eyes wide open, wanting to do good. And I quickly found, it took me a few experiences to solidify this, that it's not for everyone. You know, I, it, to me, that is really tough work. I, I see it as have to have some really thick skin uh, in terms of the process and the people whose job it is to basically discredit. And I, I'm wondering what that experience is like for you and how do you handle that? Yeah, that is a great uh, question because <laughs> after doing it for about, mm, I guess it's 20 plus years, I'm starting to become a bit jaded at this the, the whole process of pitting doctors against each other, mm -hmm. the blame, the whole system of blaming uh, someone for a negative outcome. Um, and then, yes, the process of if I'm an expert, that means I am opening myself up to major criticism and the other side is going to want to tear me down and make me look stupid on the stand so mm. that whatever I say can be discredited. Um, I try, I've gotten better over the years to, um, remain calm and not let myself get too emotional because that is actually what I think some of them are trying to do. Just kind of rattle you so that you right. look like I shouldn't, they shouldn't trust anything I say. So I work very hard to just kind of tell myself this is a game 
It's not about the truth. It's about winning a game <laughs> because mm-hmm. doctors don't think that way as you, you know, you're a psychologist. Right. It's about, you know, what's the truth and what do we do about the truth? Mm-hmm. You know, the law and no, I'm not a lawyer, but still my perception of it is it's about a game and winning a winning aside. So, um, so it, it does take a lot out of me. I don't mm-hmm. go to court a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of cases settle. So fortunately, I don't have to go to court a lot, but it does take a lot out of me. And I've got to build myself up really, really big before I go in and just say, this is what they're trying to do. And, yeah. you know, yeah. I'm not going to let I, let it tear me down. Yeah. Thank you for that human perspective, um, because uh, I do think those others that I have met who have been in the field, it's it's becoming jaded and then becoming numb is all too um, common, I find. And it takes a uh, special person and a lot of intention to, especially after all these years, to still care and to still have to pick oneself up to to do your job and be prepared for these other elements that you described. Yeah. And one other aspect of Mm -hmm. forensics that I at least wanted to throw in there is, so there's a lot of attention on true crime and there's an entertainment aspect to it. Mm -hmm. But as someone who has evaluated some of these people, it's very dark and it's not entertaining at all. Right. Right. And um, so... I, you know, initially I was pulled into doing media um, commentary because of the crime stuff that I was involved in. And I kept wanting to get past that and be mm-hmm. and be interviewed for clinical psychiatry right. and not right. crime right. Um, as for entertainment purposes. So I finally feel like I've arrived at that where yes. now my focus is about helping people and what I went into psychiatry for. Yes, and in a um, media expansive environment, which we're going to talk about, which is so cool, I, um, I, I'm interested on your way to what you've become in terms of your um, platform, this mission of demystifying mental health. Um, and it clearly... You know, as I watch your videos and learn more about your work, it you know it's 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 present in everything you do. Was there a like a moment that that became your mission, or has it just it been building over time? It's been building over time. I started in my own practice in 2006, and probably about a year or two into my own solo practice, I just got the sense that there's a lot of stuff that people just don't know and don't understand. And here I can deliver all of these lectures uh, in air quotes to my mm-hmm. patients. Um, but they're not, they're only going to remember a portion of what I said of what mm-hmm. I explained to them. So if I could create a library of information that people can reference so that I can spend the session talking to them about their personal life, and then they can, they can go outside of the session and hear more about the details of this disorder, that disorder. But then I, 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 you know, kind of realized, yeah, but I want to reach more people than just the people that I see in my office, that this is, this is a systemic issue. It's not just these few, you know, hundred people or however many patients I had coming to see me. So that's when it was probably around 2008, I started blogging first mm-hmm. um, and writing things. And then it evolved to uh, YouTube videos. Um, and YouTube, you have um, 
million YouTube. Fo- I mean, you you have an incredible amount of YouTube followers, and th- and now of course expanded to Instagram and even TikTok. Um, could you ever imagined that you like who you are and how you know yourself would have such a social media presence? No, I did not. Because I'll tell you, I I had a podcast sometime around 2015, and it was on, it was a working woman's podcast, is what it, it what it was designed to be called um, Beyond Burnout. I made it that niche because I didn't think people were ready to talk about real psychiatric stuff or heavy duty psych stuff, depression, bipolar disorder. I just didn't think people were interested. And I got some confirmation of that when I, uh, I, you know, I did, I, I started kind of doing YouTube regularly in 2018, but I dabbled in it before then. And there was lots of negative comments and things like that. And that scared me away. And so I felt like, well, people aren't ready for this. They don't want to hear about this kind of stuff. So I would talk about lightweight lifestyle issues and burnout. And that was my way to talk, but not talk about things that I didn't think people were ready to hear. So I myself am was very surprised at the interest and how the interest grew and the following grew over time with me talking about non sensationalized mental health uh, mm. topics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, and people are interested, and there is less, because of your work and so many others, there is less, we still have a ways to go, but less and less stigma about mental health. I mean, we're getting somewhere in terms of this mm-hmm. is something that we need to talk about. This is not personal. This is part of your biology. This is part of your environment. This is part of what happened to you. And these are all the different manifestations of being human. Um, people, I think people think that we ended up with a anxiety epidemic or even pandemic, anxiety pandemic as a result of COVID. And I think COVID has just brought, it clearly has increased in um, huge numbers. But I think this has also been an awakening that anxiety has been the number one mental health global issue, even surpassing depression, which used to be the the winner. Um, for a long time and with a growing trend with children and adolescents um, over the last decade at alarming rates. Yes, I agree. Um, In fact, I was just reviewing the um, recommendations by the U.S. task force that recently Mm -hmm. came out about anxiety screenings. It's a Mm -hmm. 700-page document, by the way. Mm -hmm. And... um, and, and one of the some data that they noted was that there was an increase of six percent increase in the incidence of depression and anxiety because they actually looked at both from two, 2020 to 2021, just in that one year. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't doubt that there has been a real increase uh, given what we've been through. Mm-hmm. But I do think some of the increased numbers are the result of increased awareness as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I do credit TikTok <laughs> to <laughs> helping um, younger people, teens, recognize anxiety. Now, there's a, that's a double-edged sword because then right. people try and self-diagnose and everybody's got something. 
yep. w- whether you have something or not. But what it also has done on the positive side is help people see that, oh, you're suffering with, you have these problems too. I'm not alone. And, oh, and what I'm experiencing has a name because it's not as though um, teenagers, okay, so more teenagers may be, may be ang- anxious now, but it's not as though that's the only thing. They were anxious but may not have known that what they were experiencing is anxiety. Mm-hmm. And now more people realize it. Yes. When when did you decide, okay, I've got to write this book, this new book? I decided that I needed to write some books or, or put things in writing is probably a better way to put it. Uh, probably around 2020, not because of the pandemic. So maybe it preceded that. But um, I had people reaching out to me through my comments and emails and things uh, that, um, I, Dr. Marks, I take notes on what you're saying, but do you have anything written so I don't have to write these things down or go search your videos? So I said, you know what, why don't I, I've put so much out there let me put this into written, some of this into written form. So I started with bipolar disorder, and that's where the bipolar basics came from, which is more of a compilation of my bipolar videos, just in a manual form. Mm-hmm. And the next one was going to be anxiety. And then my publisher approached me about, uh, in early 2021, about writing an anxiety book. And I was like, well, what do you know? That's what actually what I was, I was wanting to do. So um, that was probably the bigger prod that got me doing it, uh, having someone uh, say, we're ready to receive whatever it is you're going to do. So that is impressive, having um, experience with this book and publishing world. Um, from the beginning of 2021 to release um, n- last month, or you know, not a couple months ago, not that long ago, that is a very quick process from writing to editing to getting it out there. Yes. Yes. It was very quick. (laughs) I wouldn't have minded had it been stretched out a little uh, longer than that. Mm -hmm. Uh, So yeah, I I wrote it probably in about uh, seven months, which Mm -hmm. um, on the one hand for some people may sound like a lot, but that wasn't, I was, no, I was trekking. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and everyone, when you get when you get uh, this book, why am I so anxious? Um, it is so comprehensive, and um, two hundred and fifty plus references gone that have gone into the book, and it really is. In my my goal has also been to bring clinical information in a user user friendly and digestible format, and I really appreciated how much you distilled um, in this book. And it it breaks everything down from, okay, here's what anxiety is. Here's the types of anxiety. Here's the difference, which I wanted to ask you about, the difference between an actual anxiety disorder, um, a personality that goes into becoming anxious or and just um, temperament. And then all of the different ways that one can understand it and get help. And also impressive, you clearly are we- embrace Western and Eastern medicines and philo- treatments and philosophies. I really appreciate you uh, recognizing or appreciating that process of taking articles 
and making it into something people can understand and read. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's actually a big process um, of, you know, wanting to stay accurate, but, but, you know, taking what could look like just gobbledygook and Mm -hmm. actually translating it into something that's still accurate, but simple enough to understand. Mm -hmm. Okay. I just thought of something, a question to ask you that that just came to me. And, um, do you, because part of your, part of your appeal, as I'm sitting here looking at you and talking with you is you are so relatable. Do you ever get, and I know this is a bit like pejorative in a sense, but do you ever get the, oh, wow, you don't seem like a psychiatrist. (laughs) It's like a compliment, (laughs) but it's kind of a backhanded compliment. Do you ever get that? Yes, I do. Yeah. Okay. And another <laughs> form it takes is people just wanting to call me Tracy. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, so do you call your orthopedic doctor Andy? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, so it's, it's a compliment, but yet it has, yeah, right. Yeah. You know, you, you're calling me crazy because you feel like you can relate to me, but yeah. it does dismiss the fact that I am a physician. And, yes. Yes. Know. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. I had to ask because you are, you are just, you're so <laughs> relatable and it's, it's, I think part of your secret sauce, um, a big part of your secret sauce. Okay. So, um, let's dive in. Anxiety, anxious personality, temperament. How do they, in your experience, go together or, and not go together? How are they different? Yes. So, um, so we start out with a temperament that is our hard wiring. So you're, you're born with that. You can't really change it. How it So it's kind of like starting out with the seed under the ground that grows. And once it comes above the ground, if you're picturing like a plant or something, how it blooms is partly determined by your environment and your upbringing and what that blossom ends up looking like or the final plant is what is becomes your personality. So you can have someone who just is kind of born to be have a tendency to be more anxious. And some of those traits are things like having um, less tolerance for uncertainty. So um, not knowing what's going to happen with this or what if that situation. There are some people who can tolerate not knowing those answers better and distract themselves and keep on moving towards something else, even though in the back of their head, they know, well, this horrible thing could happen. And I don't know if it will, but I'm still going to get up and go to work versus the person who's more intolerant of that kind of uncertainty can react by worrying, what ifing, ruminating about negative situations, um, and just be, being very disturbed by it and trying to over-control their lives to, mm-hmm. to deal with the fact that they don't like the uncertainty of things. So even if you are hardwired to be more on edge or anxious, it doesn't necessarily mean you'll develop a disorder or that it will become something that um, uh, becomes unmanageable over time, but you are more vulnerable to being yeah. more anxious. 
Yes, that is well put. Um, and just to, you know, the nature-nurture debate, I don't know if it's still a debate or it's, it's an acknowledgement that both are really important, who, like how we come into the world with our wiring and our DNA and also our environment. It all makes a difference. And I'm remembering some pretty profound studies of um, looking at temp longitudinal studies, looking at the temperament of kids and the, the it was the, the, the kids that were seen as having an anxious temperament did have a higher, um, higher percentage, I'm not finding my right word of, of anxiety, of anxiety as adults. Like there was, mm -hmm. you're loading, you're loading, I guess your point, your loading does make one more vulnerable. It's not destiny, but it makes you more vulnerable. Correct. Correct. Which is not your fault, you know, right. is another way to look at it because sometimes people can, uh, feel really bad about themselves or, or, um, uh, beat themselves up for why am I like this? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You hear that everyone. And that's what we're all trying to do is, um, no one, you know, for medical diagnoses, uh, the vast majority of them, people don't get blamed. People feel badly for you. And for all too long, people with significant mental health diagnoses, it seems like there's this American way of mind over matter. And this is just a matter of will. So, so your type one diabetes is not a matter of will, but your bipolar diagnosis or, um, your depression or your anxiety is a matter of will. Just like pick up your bootstraps, just move on, just get over it. Yes, that is uh, one of my pet peeves uh, mm -hmm. with that, um, mm -hmm. of, yeah, accepting something physical as that's okay. We all have, uh, our bodies are going to, are imperfect. But if it's anything mental, it's either, um, you know, it's a failing on your part. Um, some culturals, cultures may look at it as um, a demon in you. I mean, there's lots of pejorative, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. interpretations of that. Mm -hmm. So to, um, understanding, as you say, um, insight begets change, awareness brings about change. And so when we can identify something that's going on in us, we have the opportunity to do something about it instead of just assume that that's just the way we are. And that's just the way things are. Of the so many different anxiety, types of anxiety that's out there, and then for those, I've had clients, these really bright kids who come in with, I know all 700 different types of anxieties, and it is unbelievable. There is a word for everything, but they aren't all these <laughs> clinical diagnoses. So what would you say are the most common ballparks, as I like to see them, of anxiety that you, that you see? So with the disorders... Okay, I'm I'm glad I just caught something you said that I see. So actually with the disorders, the most common is specific phobia, but I don't mm -hmm. always see that as a doctor with someone mm -hmm. coming for treatment because a lot of people just live with them. So that would be things like I, I even talk about in the book about my roach phobia. Mm -hmm. um, I am fine going the rest of my life avoiding roaches. I can't no because I'm in the no. South. No exposure therapy needed there. Just stay away. 
Right. That's right. I don't yeah. want exposure yeah. therapy. Yeah. yeah. Um, so no, I'm not going to see a treatment provider for that. And a lot of people don't, but mm-hmm. nonetheless, that is the most common. Um, some of the ones though, that do cause problems enough for someone to see treatment would be something like, um, agoraphobia, Mm -hmm. Uh, where someone gets to the point where they are so fearful of getting out in public and, and having, usually it's an attack of anxiety or something and fearing they won't be able to get to safety. So they just don't go anywhere. Mm -hmm. That is very problematic. Okay. Then there is social anxiety disorder, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, which used to be called social phobia, but it's now it's been pulled out of that designation. So it's social and performance anxiety. And then generalized anxiety disorder. Those are probably the top three big ones. Mm -hmm. And I did want to clarify with social and performance anxiety, the performance part is not just you fear playing the piano in public. I mean, anyone can get anxious before a, a recital. It's about doing anything that's performing. It could be taking a test or it could be, um, speaking like, you know, needing to um, share your results in a meeting with 10 people in the meeting. So it doesn't mm-hmm. have to be big time on a stage performance. Um, and, the, and having a fear of failing in that situation such that it makes you avoid the situation can uh, get to the point where it interferes with your day-to-day functioning. So, you know, you can only call in sick so many times uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to avoid having to do this thing before now you start getting written up at work or or at school or whatever the case is. Mm-hmm. And when it starts, when when your anxiety symptoms start to interfere with your day-to-day functions, that's usually when um, it, it starts to fall into the disorder realm and warrant some sort of intervention, whether it be professional treatment or self-help. Mm-hmm. And I think this is that continuum that is so important. And as you point out, um, it's human nature to feel anxious. It's actually built into our wiring to help us survive. It actually, anxiety, signal anxiety, fear can keep us alive, right? Run away from saber two tigers. Um, when I have been give, give, when I give talks about anxiety, um, people always ask this question that I know you get, which is, well, how do I know if it's a problem? And, you know, how do I know if it's, I need help or my child needs help? And what I ended up saying is, well, this sounds not that intelligent, is a problem is not a problem unless it's a problem. <laughs> and so, you know, I want to know, that. like, what are your thoughts about, because it is, sometimes it's a fine line between just human angst and and mm-hmm. situational anxiety, which might be very valid, and when it topples into what we call often like more irrational, um, and it starts to take on a life of its own and increase with level of st- distress and impairment, as you mentioned. Correct. So that's a very good point that we still have to remember that anxiety is instinctive and it is a reaction and an emotion, a normal one for us to have under certain circumstances. So you have a stressor that creates, that is a threat to you. You're going to react with fear. That's how we're hardwired, as you mentioned. But there are people who can wake up in the morning after hopefully having a good night's rest and still feel like they want to throw up. 
um, feel like they're going, you know, doom and gloom, something bad is going to happen to them. They're not, they can't even point out what that is or the person who has something physical happen. And now they're going to see 50 different doctors and uh, going into debt because they're trying to pay for all these studies to prove that they have something or don't have something. So, you know, someone listening may say, well, I don't do that. That sounds extreme. But that's an example of how these uh, being anxious and having an experience of anxiety can become extreme for some Mm -hmm. people to where Mm -hmm. it causes problems. So it kind of goes back to that level of functioning. Is it, you know, in the diagnostic manual, one of the things is we list all these symptoms, but that you still have all of those symptoms still have to cause you impairment and functioning in some domain of your life. Mm-hmm. So when someone says to me, well, how do I know if this is a problem? <laughs> I love your statement because I think yeah. if you ask, if you need to ask, it's right. probably not a problem. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> because right, otherwise exactly. you'd be telling me, I don't yeah. like that I don't sleep. I don't like that I can't yeah. think. You know, there's something about your experience that is causing you way more distress than just the usual. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. In terms of treatments, you lay out so many, and we of course have talk therapies, like the staple cognitive behavioral and um, ACT and DBT and all of these all of these types that really many of them fall out of cognitive behavioral therapy. And then we have medicine, and then we have, which we'll get to in a moment, we have the um, Alternative therapies, which I lo- like, you. I love how many uh, you list, and also your own experience with um, some, and your own love of aromatherapies. And um, mm-hmm. I'm wondering, as from your clinical experience as a psychiatrist, what is this this like the ingredients from your perspective of talk therapy versus medicine versus alternative therapies? I'm sure it's changed over time just with your years in the field, but I'm wondering where are you at now with the, the, with the, with the recipe? Okay. So in an ideal world where nothing cost anything, no one had to pay anything. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think the best combination is, um, therapy and medication. If the person needs medication, Okay, Mm -hmm. but given Mm -hmm. that that's not the situation uh, where things do cost money and therapy is not inexpensive, um, I see medication as falling as being the go to solution or option for people whose anxiety is so unmanageable that they can't wait a few weeks or months until what they learn in therapy that they can implement what they've learned in therapy. Mm-hmm. So I see the medication is, I call it turning down the dial on their angst or distressed so that they can think clearly and behave enough to be able to then do things, make mm-hmm. changes. Mm-hmm. Um, and ultimately, though, I think that lifestyle changes and um, like cognitive behavior therapy type of interventions because mm-hmm. some of the things that I talk about in the book, which are self-help based, are still based on cognitive behavior techniques. Right. Okay. Right. So I think those are the things that if someone, um, I'll tell patients, 
okay, we can get you stabilized with medication now, but ultimately the best thing that's going to keep you feeling better is if you do these things, Mm -hmm. some of these self-help measures. So calm you down, implement some changes so that in the future, those changes are what keep you, keep your anxiety managed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because another thing I tell people is that Um, anxiety is not something that is going to go away completely. You will not have zero anxiety. That's not a reasonable expectation. Right. So what the, the reasonable expectation is that it is managed in a way that you're still able to function. You're still able to cope. If you have a spike of anxiety because something happened, some stressor, you -hmm. can still rein it in and, um, and, and deal with it and move through it. That's Mm -hmm. ultimately where you want to get. Yes. I had a personal experience that I've since shared with clients um, when I felt appropriate. At at the end of graduate school, through a a number of confluencing factors, I experienced clinical anxiety, which I had never had before. And I went to therapy and I was having trouble really working through... um, the, the therapeutic steps that we were working on. And my psychologist said, I really think that medicine would help take the edge off so you can just be more grounded and benefit. It's not forever. And I resisted. And my, the perfectionism in me, I resisted and resisted. And he's finally said, Dan, you have clients, right? Yes. Would you recommend that they take medication in this situation? Yes. What makes you different? So I finally had to like <laughs> give in. But I have to say, it changed my life because mm-hmm. it... Uh, it took, it just took me down in a way that I could be, feel, start to feel like myself again. And mm-hmm. it took me through a very important time and then I didn't need it anymore. But it, the, and the, and the therapy continued and I grew tremendously with, in the ways that I clearly needed to, um, and sharing those intermittently with the right client at the right time, which of course we're not, we're trained not to do was actually the, could be so powerful because they're like, wow, you did this and it worked and Mm -hmm. you weren't on it forever. And so I find like, um, I would have never been able to have that level of empathy and knowledge and confidence having not had such a terrible yet important experience. (laughs) Yeah, no, no, that's, that's, that's incredible. I'm glad that there are people you have been able to share that with. Cause yeah, there's, there's a lot of fear about taking medicine. What's it going to do to me? Um, and, and it isn't for everyone. Mm-hmm. You can have, you can experience side effects. It makes it unpleasant. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are some people, and a mm-hmm. large number of people, for whom it makes a world of difference. And I mm-hmm. can't tell you the number of people who've said to me, "I wished I had done this ten years ago. I spent ten right. years struggling unnecessarily." Yes, um, and the, the, those are really difficult situations. And just to to validate, you know, medicine isn't the be all end all for everyone. And I think we all agree it's for a variety of reasons are, we quickly go there maybe at the expense of other, other things, but it doesn't negate that it can be very powerful neurochemistry and intervention in that way can be very powerful for changing the way we think for changing the way we feel and changing the course of one's life. Aromatherapy. You love aromatherapy. How did, how did, how did you find aromatherapy? You know, 
I've, I've thought about this. I cannot remember how I ended up getting into it. But once I, and so, but the time-wise, it was probably around 2014, 2015, somewhere around there. Once I did, I became a fanatic. I mm -hmm. even took um, an aromatherapy training course and I was going to add it as part of my practice as a, mm. to be a certified aromatherapist. But that didn't happen because it just ended up being too much work for me to do all that. And I'm like, I have a job. Why am I doing all this stuff? <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I just, it became more of a personal thing. Um, I am the potions master in my house. In fact, mm -hmm. um, just the other day, my husband had a mosquito bite that was really bothering him. And I whipped together some tea tree oil, a couple of drops in some um, carrier oil, jojoba, and he rubbed it on himself and was on the itching was gone. And I was mm -hmm. like, yes, <laughs> mm -hmm. yes, yes. This, is, this is why I love this stuff. But um, so I've used it for physical issues as well as uh, mental and emotional. And in fact, I just recently um, ordered some um, rosemary essential mm -hmm. oil to help my son concentrate and focus. Mm -hmm. Nice. My uh, and. and well, two things. One is just to say my, my wife is the potion master in our house. So I have a lot of experience that, you know, something kid says something, I, we say something, I was like, just a second, goes to the hall closet, pulls out <laughs> uh, the bags of everything. And all of a sudden the mixing starts happening. It's just so cool. Yes. Um, so, and in your book, you have a lot of wonderful information and ingredients. And this is the other thing about self-help and while this why this book is so helpful it's clinical yet it is a self-help book there are so many different strategies lists fear ladders um mm -hmm. aroma ingredient there's so many different things that someone can try either on their own while they're contemplating seeking an outside licensed guide or in conjunction with the work that they're doing that's right and not everything, one of the reasons I include it so much is because not everything works for everyone. Mm -hmm. And I also think it's important for people to recognize that not one thing is not going to solve all of your problems. So mm -hmm. you've got to do, you've got to layer options for you. Mm -hmm. And yes. it does take work. It takes work and discipline to kind of get into a rhythm of doing these things. So when this, when I experience this, this is what I'm going to do. Or to develop just the routine of, let's say, you journaling ends up being a good thing for you to get into the routine of doing it. So it does mm -hmm. take effort, whereas not to say that people who take medication don't want to do anything, but, you know, taking something is a lot more of a passive process. You just, mm -hmm. you know, give me something, doc, and make this feel better. Yes. This is more work, but ultimately it can, you, you can develop patterns and and routines that you just kind of get used to that just make a huge difference in your quality mm -hmm. of life. Mm -hmm. So if I can ask you for three things that our listeners can do to start to do to understand, get some, ease some distress and take some steps towards anxiety, since you have a book full of things, what three things would you pull out? Okay. So let's see if I can pull out one from each section. So uh. as I mentioned, there's the mind tools, the body tools, and the behavior tools. So mind tools uh, would address 
angst and anxiety experienced uh, in your mind, like worrying, fretting, cognitive distortions. Um, what would a, a cognitive distortion be? Are there distorted ways of thinking that don't represent the reality um, mm-hmm. and usually are an, a, a conclusion that you draw that's um, that doesn't take into account other uh, other aspects of the situation or other possibilities. So catastrophizing would be one example of that. Um, I believe that, um, you know, we're all just going to die anyway from COVID. So why bother doing this, that, and the other? Right. Um, versus maybe this can happen or maybe there'll be, um, maybe we will get herd immunity, you know, whatever, whatever the situation is. But I've gone down a rabbit hole, which is easy for me to do when I start talking about (laughs) this topic. So (laughs) there's so much stuff. So let me just rein it back in. So um, for a mind tool, let's say I I did mention journaling earlier, and there's different types of journaling, but I think an even easier thing to to have at the ready is um, um, grounding exercises. So Grounding exercises are things are kind of an offshoot or an application of mindfulness, being mindful in the moment. So Mm -hmm. what Mm -hmm. you are doing is you are taking your thoughts, instead of thinking about the future, worrying about the future, or even the past, you're bringing it into the present um, without, and thinking about that present situation without judgment. Mm -hmm. So um, instead of, so an easy way to practice mindfulness. Um, this is separate from grounding. I know that I I mentioned grounding, but I'm going to use this one instead because it's easy is practicing mindfulness in everyday situations. So washing the dishes, instead of thinking about the other things that you've got to do when you're finished washing the dishes, focus on what you're doing using all of your senses. So you're going to mm-hmm. focus on how it touch it, how the plate feels, how hard it is, the temperature of the water, the smell of the soap suds, and you 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 completely immerse yourself in that situation while you're doing it. If you mm. do that, you're engaging in mindful activity and yes. even five, 10 minutes of mindfulness diffuses anxiety. Yes. <laughs> So that's an easy thing to do while you're folding laundry. So whatever the brushing your teeth, you know, so and I do that personally, everyone, I love mindful laundry folding and mindful dishes doing. And these are things I used to very much dislike. But when you add mindfulness and presence to them, it changes the whole the whole thing. So here's a quick body tool. So one of the body tools I talk about is manipulating your vagus nerve or use your vagus nerve to relax you your vagus nerve is um, the main nerve that uh, presses on the gas when you're amped up about something. Mm -hmm. So if you get anxious, um, you get surges of adrenaline that increase your heart rate, make you anxious, et cetera. And then when the threat has passed and you start to calm down, it's your vagus nerve that kicks in and slows you down. You can manipulate that nerve to make you slow down at any time. Mm. And a way to do that is um, by activating your vocal cords. There are several ways to do it, holding your breath, practicing Valsalva maneuver, but your, your vagus nerve runs adjacent to your vocal cords. So if you get them to vibrate, 
it can also activate or trigger your vagus nerve to produce a calming effect. One way to do that is by saying, um, and that's Mm. probably why that's one of the sounds that are made in certain types of chanting and meditation practices. So, um, so that's one way to do that. Another way to do that, if you're somewhere and you can't make that kind of noise is splashing cold water either on your face or on your chest, kind of a, a part of um, a place on your core, like not your uh-huh. hands, but on your yep. face or your chest. Um, and that that sudden change in temperature also activates the vagus nerve. Wow. Mm-hmm. We can manipulate our vagus nerve with these very simple, they're very simple things to do. Very simple, yeah. very yeah. simple. And then a behavior tool I list several again, but in the section on behavior tools, but I think an easy one that people may not think much about is using laughter to relax. Now, you might think, well, if I'm uptight, there is nothing that's going to be funny to me. Well, the beauty of laughter is that it does not have to be spontaneous. You do not have to be Mm -hmm. amused. Mm-hmm. Forced laughter has also been shown to diffuse anxiety. So um, you can, of course, you can, and also anticipating laughter has a similar effect. So you can try, do things like watch uh, a comedy show if you can find one that makes you spontaneously laugh. Mm-hmm. But I talk in the book about laughter yoga which is a series of exercises where people, where you used forced laughter to get the same effect. Mm -hmm. And one of the exercises is pretending like you're talking on a cell phone to someone. And instead of talking, you, um, you talk with ha ha, he, he, ho, ho, and you change the tone of it. So, you know, here I am talking, but ha ha, he, he, and ho, ho. And it sounds very silly, but, um, Interestingly enough, sometimes when you start doing all of that and feeling silly, it can spontaneously make you laugh after a while. Like you can end up laughing. So, um, so anyway, yes, making, forcing laughter can also release endorphins and things and be, um, and help your anxiety. And it reminds me of the whole, um, recovery and recovery uh, movement of fake it to make it because what when we act in certain mm-hmm. ways our bodies change our neurochemistry changes and um that's right it changes our present moment our present state so yes. many things so many things dr marks okay i everyone you have to get this book there is there literally is so much information packed in there we're only scratching the surface um and we would keep going but it's time for the parent footprint moment question. You are ready. I see that look. Okay, here we go. (laughs) Tell us about a time that you became aware of yourself as an individual, as a parent, or even an awareness of your own parents. And that new awareness had a positive impact on your life, your kids, and or those you love. Okay, here it goes. So, 
the moment that I could most relate to, I'm sure there was probably one years before, but most recently was when my parents moved in with me, my elderly parents. They mm -hmm. moved in in um, 2019. And I had been trying to get them to uh, move up from Florida uh, years before that, but they weren't ready. They're not, they're not there yet, all of this. Mm -hmm. um, and it was kind of a forced acceleration of that process after my father had a fall. Once they got settled in my house, um, you know, my mom said to me, here we are, we spent our, our entire lives working and saving money for that, this one day in the future when we can enjoy ourselves and we've amassed all the savings and now we're too old to do anything with it. Mm. And hearing, hearing her talk about her regret that way made me reflect on my own life. And I've essentially been doing the same thing of working really hard. I've got my own practice and now I have this online presence and there's still kind of in the back of, even though I enjoy it, there's in the back right. of my mind, um, I'm doing all this for one day when I can right. kick back and settle a little bit more and relax mm. and have more free time. Right. And I don't know when that's ever going to happen for me mm, at the mm, rate that right. I'm going. I'm still as busy as I've ever been. And mm, my mm. child is growing up and will be out of the house at some point. And mm, mm. then what have I got? Yeah. So it was at that, after that conversation, I decided, uh, and soon after that came COVID, the pandemic, I mm -hmm. decided I have got to live more for today and stop living for the future which is what I've been doing for probably 15 years. And so if that, if that means turning down some things, yeah. oh, well, I'll turn them down so that I can enjoy today. Good for you. And thank you for sharing that with all of us. Um, that completely resonates with me as well. And listeners, I know that is resonating with you. And it's finding this balance of, purpose and work and saving and all of our obligations and also being aware of like where's time for us now because uh the future is uncertain speaking of anxiety the future is uncertain yes <laughs> <That's> right <laughs> <laughs> well i wish you i wish you this time amongst your success and your impact which is tremendous and significant and i thank you for what you're doing um as a as a leader in our field being out there and uh doing your mission of demystifying uh mental health and um really bringing awareness to health and wellness um i wish you your own time as well and time to smell the roses thank you thank you very yeah. much i'm working on it so tell everyone where they can continue to well to find your book and to see all of your videos and TikTok, everything you're putting out there regularly. Sure. So the book, Why Am I So Anxious, can be found anywhere books are sold. So whether you are an Amazon or Barnes & Noble type person versus bookshop.org person, it can even be in your local library. It is in some libraries, not all, and you can ask your library to order it. Um, and it comes in hardcover, digital, and audio version if you're one who prefers to listen while you're driving or listen on the go, yeah. I should say. Yeah. And then um, 
as far as my uh, my social media stuff, so um, my main place is YouTube. I also produce a different kind of content, uh, bite-sized content on Instagram. So it's not just YouTube stuff rehashed. And then there's TikTok. All of my handles for those are Dr. Tracy Marks, D-R Tracy, T-R-A-C-E-Y Marks. And my website is where, if you forget that, is is my real hub, markspsychiatry.com. And it has all of the places where I am online. Yes, it has everything. So if you guys just want one thing to go, go to the website and you can link, you can go to, every, you go everywhere from there. Dr. Marsh, thank you for sharing your time with us and your experience and all of your wisdom. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please share this with everyone you know will benefit. And I know there are many, many, many people who will benefit from this information and content today. Thank you for your five-star reviews. They make a difference. Do your best to be that person you want your child to become and ask yourself the guiding question I ask myself each day, what footprint do you want to leave? This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummerman, composed and performed by ProTunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. Follow Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.